It is more than a decade since Thailand last held a, well, more or less straightforward general election. The 2014 election was widely boycotted and disrupted, ruled invalid by the Constitutional Court and followed by a coup d'etat. The 2019 election was also a bit weird given that all of the Senate was to be appointed by the ruling junta rather than voted for by the people and Parliament ended up endorsing the incumbent Prime Minister, former General Prayat chan even though his party did not win the most seats in the House of Representatives. So the Thai general election scheduled for May 14th matters a great deal. Thailand's modern history has been a continual arm wrestle between popular democracy and military dictatorship. The 2014 coup d'etat was at least Thailand's 22nd successful or attempted such endeavour since the modern Thai state was established in 1932. The likeliest figure to thwart Prayut's ambitions of extending his tenure as Prime Minister is Petongton Shinawat, the 36-year-old daughter of one previous Prime Minister and niece of another. The feud between the Shinawat dynasty and the military royal establishment has been another recurring theme of recent Thai politics. And it is unclear precisely what influence is wielded behind the scenes by Thailand's eccentric king, Fachira Longkorn, and inquiry is rigorously deterred. Thailand maintains ferocious lays majesty laws. Hundreds of people have been charged with insulting the king in recent years, including last month a man who got three years for selling calendars depicting a rubber duck wearing a crown. The rubber duck is associated as a symbol with pro-democracy protests in Thailand, but still. Will next month's election re-establish Thailand as a democracy? What other stakes are in play? And will the army and the king abide by the result? This is The Foreign Desk. Ung Ing is the daughter of the former ousted Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat, and she has extraordinary charisma. She is a business person, has never really waded into politics at all. But such is the Shinawat allure in this country that she has already proven extremely popular. She has a natural charm and charisma, attracts a lot of people to rallies. Clearly, you can say she is extremely popular. Thailand needs a change. We've had essentially the same government for eight years now. The first four was as a military junta. The subsequent four were as an elected government, but essentially the same prime minister for eight years. And I think we've become sort of stuck in so many ways, both socially and certainly economically. So this election is an opportunity for a fresh take on things, a fresh approach to policies. And unless you have a change in government, that is not going to be possible. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, by Gwen Robinson, Monocle's Bangkok correspondent. Gwen, first of all, let's talk about the propriety of the election. How confident is everybody that everything is going to be above board? Look, you know, you've had a huge push by the human rights body and civil society, which came to a peak recently with a report and an open letter signed by various activist groups to the international community warning that these elections will not be free and fair and don't be fooled that the fact that a lot of opposition groups are participating. So that's the fact, you know, that a lot of opposition groups are participating and the elections take place under 
what is, as people know, Thailand has a uniquely skewed system. I think everyone has heard of the enormous power of the monarchy and also, you know, the fact that it's a very coup-prone country and it's taking place under a system that was, well, they like to call it reformed since the coup of 2014. So it is skewed. There is an upper house that is entirely appointed by what is currently the ruling party and it's you know, cronies, largely military establishment and conservatives. So you've got a Senate that is 250 seats, all handpicked. And then you've got a very big lower house, which is 500 seats, which is up for grabs. So there is a very good chance that very popular opposition parties could make substantial inroads in the lower house of parliament. What they then have to do is a lot of horse trading to possibly be able to form a coalition government with an opposition party at the helm. Let's talk then a bit about what polls are suggesting is the person likely to be Thailand's next prime minister and the degree to which she is entirely her own person. She's barely been in politics a year. She is due to give birth more or less on election day, which obviously doesn't preclude anybody running a government. But it is causing people to wonder whether it's her or her father who's really in charge here. Right. Well, you've already given it away, Andrew. The, <laughs> the name of this very popular candidate is Patongtan Shinawat, or more popularly known as Ung Ing. And Ung Ing is the daughter of the former ousted Prime Minister Taksin Shinawat, who was ousted in a coup, another coup, much earlier in 2006, and lives in voluntary exile. And she has extraordinary charisma. She is a business person, has never really waded into politics at all. But such is the Shinawat allure in this country that she has already proven extremely popular. She has a natural charm and charisma, attracts a lot of people to rallies, heavily pregnant. She's out there, you know, dressed in a big baggy jacket and just seems a real natural. And she's polling very high. I think the last poll result I saw was she's got about 37, 38%, nearly 40% popularity. But, you know, polls also in Thailand are a little bit suspect. But clearly, you can say she is extremely popular. You couldn't make it up that, you know, this woman is heavily pregnant and is giving birth on or around election day. Many analysts think this is actually quite a good thing. You know, she can appear looking very much as an expectant mother. You know, voters might like that, mother of the nation, that kind of thing. And there is another prominent candidate in her party, Puatai, who is a business person also, Seta Tavisin. And he is not so popular, but has already made a mark and I think is getting voters' ears as a kind of person that looks quite serious, looks quite respectable, has been around for a while. He is head of a property development company that is also very well known in Thailand. So there's a third candidate as well who is not so well known, but the three of those seem to make up a bit of a triumvirate that seem to balance each other out. So it is playing quite well with voters and they are the largest opposition party and will field in almost every constituency across the country. So they are 
looking pretty strong. There is an aspect of this election, of course, where the key issue is the future and nature of Thai democracy itself. But beyond the big existential question like that, what actually are emerging as the key issues? I think really after two years of COVID and really a very big hit to Thailand's economy, the really big issues are the economy and how people's daily lives have been affected. And that is why even Thai, the big opposition party, and of course the establishment parties are out there offering voters all kinds of things, big increases in social security payments, all kinds of relief payments, assistance with this and that, and also a bit on the economic infrastructure and development front. Just finally, and I realise that there probably isn't a short answer to this question, but if the result of this is a government ultimately to some extent dominated by Thaksin Shinawat and he finds himself again in opposition to the military and royal establishment, is there a concern that Thailand's democracy gets reset to square one? (laughs) You do ask complicated questions. (laughs) So one thing to understand, I think, about these elections, unlike most elections around the world, we will not actually know the final results for nearly two months because under Thailand's electoral laws, the finalisation of votes and positions is 60 days from election day. So that gives quite a lot of time for a lot of horse trading and that, I think, will be the result. So what will happen is we will know who won how much, where and what on the night. And it has to be said that for the first time, there is a massive national movement now of independent media, civil society groups, activists who have all banded together. I think the last count was that more than 100,000 people have joined this, including big media organisations, to run their own independent tally. So they will be able to work out the position of each party. However, what happens after that is just going to be a frenzy of deal-making, backroom horse trading, and it is not unlikely that you might see poor Thai actually hook up with one of the most conservative parties. For example, the master of deal-making is the Deputy Prime Minister Prawit. People are predicting that one possibility could be a deal between Prawit and the poor Thai. That would seem like unholy and obscene bedfellows, but really anything is possible in Thailand. Gwen, thank you. That was Monocle's Bangkok correspondent, Gwen Robinson. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Monocle's Asia editor, James Chambers, has been speaking to various political candidates in Bangkok to find out how opposition parties are gearing up for the election. James sat down with Korn Chattakavani, a Thai politician who formerly served as finance minister from 2008 to 2011. Korn is now the leader of the Chat Patana party. James began by asking Korn whether this year's election will be free and fair. Well, I think it's free in the sense that I don't think there's any sense of personal danger or otherwise, either in campaigning or in voting for the party or the candidate that you want to vote for. But it's not fair, not least because of the prevailing and increasing use, frankly speaking, of money in the process. And we're not just talking about money that is used for promotion. 
but it's money that, frankly, is used for direct vote buying. That, unfortunately, has been on the increase in recent local and general elections. I think it is the biggest impediment towards us having the kind of free and fair democratic system that we all aspire to have. And I think it's directly related to the level of corruption that still exists within our society. Can a political party take part in an election and not engage in that type of vote buying? We're trying to do that. And it's one of the reasons why we're considered one of the smaller parties. Out of the 400 constituencies around the country, we are fielding only 105 candidates. Part of the reason why we are not able to fill or supply candidates for all 400 constituencies is because of the financial burden, that it's quite heavy for us to do so. And we choose basically to submit candidates in largely urban areas simply because they are less prone towards being swayed by the buying of votes as compared to the rural areas. And that's an unfortunate fact of life for us. But I think we've decided we need to take this one step at a time. Ideally, we have fair elections to the extent whereby money is not used in this way. All our candidates campaign to try to encourage the members of the public to avoid voting for those who seek to buy their votes simply because you know, the buying of votes is, should be looked upon as an investment made for greater returns once in power. And that is not good for democracy, that's not good for the country as a whole. You've been involved in, directly involved in Thai politics for almost 20 years, Indeed. I think. In your experience, how important is this election and what's at stake? Thailand needs a change. We've had essentially the same government for eight years now. The first four was as a military junta, the subsequent four were as an elected government but essentially the same prime minister for eight years. And I think we've become sort of stuck in so many ways, both socially and certainly economically. So this election is an opportunity for a fresh take on things, a fresh approach to policies, and a shake-up of the power base, which I think is also important. Our view is that substantial number of changes need to be made at the core. And unless you have a change in government, that is not going to be possible. So I think... Change is important after eight years of being stuck in this path. So from that perspective, this is an important election for Thailand. Not least if you look at economic growth. In the past four years, the average rate of GDP growth has been less than 1%. Okay, we were hit by COVID, but when compared to our regional peers, that's one of the slowest rate of growth in the region. This rate of growth is one of the main reasons why people feel squeezed economically, because cost of living, you know, earnings is not keeping up with the rapid rise in the cost of living. And I think this election is very timely from that perspective. When I arrived in Thailand at the start of this year, I was excited about the election. I was mm. excited about change. And, and I bought into this narrative about the return of democracy to Thailand. But in the last three or four months, the people I've been speaking to, especially in Bangkok, they don't share that excitement. Mm. They're not actually that excited about the election because you know, they don't expect much to change. They expect the same old, I guess, politics to continue. And it doesn't matter who's in charge. Are they right? 
Unfortunately, there is a strong element of truth in that, not least because if you look at the main political parties, what you've seen is a switching of individual allegiances from one spectrum to another. I think people are confused as to how individuals could jump parties in that way without apparent allegiance to any kind of ideology or beliefs. And I think that leads to a certain level of disillusionment. So we're having to try very hard to basically say that change is possible. You just need to believe. And I think there are some parties, including ours, that proposing at any rate genuine change. And people just need to believe that that can be possible and vote for the change that they want. So what is your party's you know, message of change? What are you promising to voters? Our platform is very much directly related to the economy. We're basically saying that in our canvassing, in the past three years of spending a lot of time with the constituents around the country, the biggest issue that the general public faces today is the cost of living issue, a lack of economic opportunities, especially for the young. And we are very much focused on those achievable issues. We've come up, for example, with one of the few parties that have come up with a clear program as to how to turn the national economy around, how to generate fresh opportunities for the population through an economic program that we've called the spectrum economy. So the spectrum includes seven different shades of color, each color representing different opportunities and challenges to Thailand. For example, green color obviously represents opportunities to Thailand given global trends towards carbon neutrality, towards a better environment. That, in our opinion, is an opportunity for Thailand to completely reboot the level of investment that has been very much moribund in the economy in order to completely restructure, for example, our energy structure, which is currently very much based on fossil fuels. And there are other shades of color within the spectrum, each representing different opportunities for Thais. One of the things that our listeners might know about Thai politics is the prevalence of a coup. Yeah, every decade. Every decade, yes. (laughs) I've had two already (laughs) in my 18-year political life. The Prime Minister and former General Prayut Chanachai did come out and say, rule out any more. They always do. Coups, they always do. (laughs) Do you believe him? Well, it's not for him to say. He's not a military man anymore. I think he would hope that that is the case because if there was a coup now, it would be a coup against him. I personally believe that a lot of times it's the political class that creates room and, and allows the military to justify having a coup. And if we behave ourselves better and ask ourselves whether we've behaved ourselves properly, to the extent whereby there is no room for any rationale that can be given by any military group for having another coup. For example, can we do away with political corruption? Corruption is used as an excuse by the military to take over. It's always an excuse, by the way, but there's always truth behind that excuse. So in order to ensure that there is no more coup, we politicians, I think, need to get our act together as well and improve the way we do things and the way we behave. And finally, this is your first election as the leader of a party. How have you, or how are you finding it, leading the ticket? 
I think it's been a great experience. It's different because I find myself caring more about how my candidates will do than my own prospects. And I think that's the right change at the right time. We're united very much as a party. We have a great platform. We're very proud of the policies that we are presenting to the public. The public, I think, now truly understands what we are about. We are one of the few parties that consider ourselves liberal democrat, and we are happy to be in that space. So, yeah, we're looking forward to the day. And frankly, you know, whatever the result is, we can feel we can hold our head up high and say that we've been true to our own beliefs, which I think is the most important thing. That was the Thai politician Korn Chattikavani speaking to Monocle's James Chambers. While all opposition parties competing in this election are calling for change, one party hasn't shied away from pushing for major democratic reforms. Thailand's Move Forward party has surged in popularity, particularly among young voters, and is calling for a reduced influence of the armed forces in politics and for the amendment of the draconian Lay's Majesty laws. Earlier, Monocle's James Chambers spoke to Tasana Chunhavan, a young MP candidate for Move Forward. James began by asking why Move Forward is so popular in Bangkok. I think we offer something that is different than the other parties, even on the democratic side or the liberal side. We are offering structural changes, which differs from Pure Thai. You know, they're offering very good, I would say, economy policies, which we also encourage that. But we are also offering structural changes that would forever change Thailand. And it would stop the cycle of the coup d'etat. And with the decentralization of power and the transitional changes in democratic societies. Because every single time there's a coup d'etat, there's an economic slump, which means that there's no investment, there's no FDI. We have the largest gaps between the rich and the poor, according to World Bank in 2020 in Southeast Asia, which is quite, how to say, shocking, isn't it? That it used to be one of the leaders in the ASEAN countries, and now we are behind everybody in terms of the gap between the rich and the poor. You know, like the trust in democracy, the system has been lost in the younger generations. And we are at a critical age of this concern. And that's why Move Forward is trying to pushing for the changes within the justice system as well. You know, and um, the anti-slap law, strategic lawsuit against public participation. We are trying to push for that. So we need more votes in order to be the government and can push for these changes in the justice system. And listening to that was James Chambers, Monocle's Asia editor, who joins us now from Bangkok. James, what more can you tell us about the Move Forward Party? They've had a few incarnations by now, but what do they currently stand for? The Move Forward Party are the new kids on the block. They're the kind of progressive, liberal party that appeals to the young people. They only recently formed, but as you referred to, they have a previous iteration, which was called Future Forward, who contested the last election 2019, surprised everyone by winning like 80 seats, but then got banned by the constitutional court. So this is the version two. It's got a few different people in charge, but the people who 
were involved in Future Forward are still behind the scenes. They're part of the opposition, but what sets them apart from the main opposition party, Pertai, is that they're probably the only ones who are promising to properly shake up the system from kicking the, the military out of politics and changing the constitution, but also doing things like shaking up the brewing laws, because that's like a huge monopoly here, which is controlled by a couple of extremely wealthy people. And Thailand hasn't had the same kind of craft brewing trend that we've seen around the world because it's essentially illegal here or it's made very difficult. And so one of their flagship policies has been to try and change that. So they're essentially they're trying to shake up everything from business to politics. And they would say that they're the only party that's promising real change. The idea of the youth vote being important is clearly a theme of this election, and it's quite a common theme in most elections. But there is always that contradiction, I guess, between parties saying that the youth are the future, which obviously they are, and then the fact that come election day, the youth seem doggedly disinclined to vote. Do you get a sense of how invested in this Thailand's actual youth are? So over the last few years, I mean, we've all seen the youth in Thailand and specifically in Bangkok come out and protest. So they are very active, but I think they are very jaded about Thai politics. You know, when I moved here, in January, I was super excited about the upcoming election. And I bought into this whole narrative that, you know, democracy was coming back and there was going to be this huge change. But actually, when I just started talking to people and young people in Bangkok, I started to realize that actually they certainly didn't share that excitement because even though Move Forward will probably win, you know, a similar amount of seats to last time, they're not going to win the most amount of seats and they're not going to be actually going to be able to change anything. So the kind of choice they face actually is whether they do put their vote with Move Forward or they actually give it to Pertai, which is also in the opposition, but you know is very much part of the traditional Thai politics. But if they do vote for Pertai and Pertai do win big, then they have probably the best chance of actually removing the generals from power. So I guess the young people, if they do turn out to vote, you know, have some tough decisions to make. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit as well about just the general campaigning style of the incumbents. What is a Thai election like compared to others? Is it perhaps less formal? Well, we see in Bangkok a lot of election posters. There are a lot of kind of pickup trucks driving around with election jingles. Some of them is like Thai pop. Some of them have gone for rap music. So it's very, it's even more noisy right now. But it has been interesting to see the lengths that politicians will go to to canvas for votes. That one of the most funniest and surprising images I saw recently was the current prime minister and former general Prayut, who turned up at the recent Songkran celebrations on the famous Kosan Road in what looked like a kind of psychedelic rave shirt. And he was carrying one of those super soaker water pistols and very much taking part in the Thai New Year tradition of, you know, soaking each other on the streets. And I guess you'd say he's pulling out all the stops to try and continue as Thai leader. 
You will be hitting the campaign trail properly next week, and we will be hearing all about that on Monocle Radio's daily news shows. But given all we've discussed, what expectations do you have for that? So I went out to follow one of the Move Forward's MP candidates for Bangkok recently, and it's pretty brutal campaigning and leafleting at the moment in Bangkok because it's so hot. I mean, she was walking through a grassroots neighbourhood in Bangkok, handing out leaflets. It was a good reminder that in a city like this, you know, extreme wealth and extreme poverty live side by side. So for all our conversations about democracy and constitutional change, actually the main theme of this election has been cost of living and the economy, and every party is competing to offer basically handouts and giveaways. And one of the most famous campaign promises is from Pertai, which is just to hand out 10,000 baht as part of a digital wallet. So while we all hope, I guess, to see a democratically elected party form the next government, there are other considerations that voters will have in mind come May 14th. That was Monocle's Asia editor, James Chambers. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. For an inside look into what it's like serving amid the hurly-burly of Thai politics, I'm joined now from Singapore by Kiara Kijborana, Manager of Government Projects, Legal Affairs and Communications at the Chandler Institute of Governance. Kiara formerly served as a member of the House of Representatives in Thailand from 2019 to 2021. First of all, what do you see as the stakes in this election, the potential outcomes for Thailand's future? Well, I think we can all agree that the stakes are high, as we say with every single election. The next government will have to deal with a wide range of issues, um, you know, say rising cost of living, aging population, environmental risks, as we've seen high levels of pollution in Thailand recently, and also more importantly, the economic recovery from the pandemic. And with so many different parties in contention this time round and the amendments being made to the 2017 constitution, the race will be tight. With the electoral process having been changed to a two-ballot system, there will be a few implications to this. I want to talk a bit about your experience as a member of parliament from 2019 to 2021. What was your experience of working within Thai politics like? How easy or difficult is it to make a difference? Well, I think how easy or difficult it was to make a difference also depends on how involved or engaged you want to be in your work. And being an MP, as with any other career path, you have to learn how to navigate the complexities of your job. And the first stage is always learning how things work. So for example, it could be something as simple as finding out where you can get the resources, data, information that you would need, or something a bit more challenging, like submitting your first motion or co-sponsoring a draft bill. So as a first-term MP, the process hasn't always been straightforward. Um, It's not clear where the resources you need would be, but I think that's no excuse. I think the first few months, the learning curve was steep, but as you get on with it, that's when you get work done and learn how to do your job more effectively. And during that time, how did your sense, I guess, evolve or develop of what actually matters to Thai voters? Well, having been in politics and speaking to different people across various constituencies nationwide, I get the sense that they want to have a government that's able to deliver on their promises and actually make sound policy to address economic issues. 
I think as we've seen with every single election campaign, we see a lot of parties manifesto coming out promising very generous handout and subsidies. And if I can put it this way, it appears that the, the party are trying to one up one another. And, you know, that's worrying because that would have significant impact on the fiscal and monetary policies when it comes time for them to govern. So I think rather than these bold promises that are not backed by concrete plans for implementations and, you know, having parties with no track record of actually following through on a promise, ties are looking to have a party or, or parties or coalitions We have a realistic plan to boost the economy, to improve the standard of living, and make sure that Thailand retains its competitiveness in the international market. There has been a lot of talk, as you will be aware, about this election, about how young Thais in particular see it and how young Thais can be encouraged to get out and vote. You were elected as part of that younger generation of Thai people. Do you feel that they see Thai politics and indeed Thailand itself in a vastly different way to the way that Thai politics and Thailand is seen by the more entrenched powers that we've got used to running the place? Yes, I would have to agree with that statement. So having grown up in a political environment that is largely unstable and divisive, many people my age, and by my age, I mean people in their late 20s, early 30s, tend to see politics a little differently from the younger Thais who are in their early 20s and some who are eligible to vote for the first time. I remember a couple of years back when I participated in my first political activities, some of my friends would warn me against it. They would as the common saying goes, politics is dirty business, don't get involved. But I have seen that mindset being shifted in recent years with the younger electorates. And thanks to the power of the internet and social media, I feel that they are no longer this dissolution as the generation that came before them. For them, I think they now understand the power they hold over elected officials, which to me is such a powerful realization one can have. And I hope that the next step for them is to engage more meaningfully with the representative and for candidates to also realize that it has to be a two-way conversation and start involving people in policy planning and any decisions being made before they get finalized. We're still a few weeks away from the election itself. And given the history of Thai elections, almost anything could happen between now and polling day. But after polling day, and especially given that history, how confident is it possible to be that the election itself will be fairly, you know, fair and transparent and that the results will be respected by everybody? Now, I think in this respect, the Election Commission will have their work cut out for them to ensure that the process is free and fair. But I also don't think that you can blame the people for distrusting the process, given accusations and cases of electoral fraud, vote buying and abuse of power in the past. And trust do take time to build. It's not something that can be forced on the people. You can't just tell them that the election is free and fair without presenting them with the relevant evidence to prove your point. And I think that's why all political parties and institutions need to work together to ensure that the legitimacy of the election is not brought into questions and that results can be respected. My takeaway for this is that we need to build up capabilities of civil servants and public sector institutions so that they can stand firm in the face of undue pressure and influence. Kiara, thank you for joining us. That was the former Thai MP Kiara Kijborana. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio.
This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Most modern monarchies take a pretty relaxed approach to dissent, understanding that mockery and criticism is a pretty reasonable price to pay for all the palaces. Thailand's monarchy in this respect is ruggedly old school. Carping at the king is a criminal offence. Joining me now from Kyoto is Parvin Chachawampongpan, Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at Kyoto University. Parvin, first of all, let's talk about the reasons why we're speaking to you from Kyoto today. Is it fair to say that you are in exile because you have criticised Thailand's monarchy? Yes, you can say that. In 2014, in the aftermath of the coup in Thailand, I was summoned and basically because I had long been a critic against the Thai monarchy. So the Thai junta used that opportunity to summon me. And then when I reject the summon, they issue a warrant for my arrest. And then eventually they revoke my passport, forcing me to apply for a refugee with Japanese government. And since you did that, do you get the sense that they're still watching you or that they are still pursuing you? They have been watching me so closely every single minute. For example, I was attacked in my own apartment in Kyoto in 2019. Luckily, the case came to an end last year after three-year investigation, and the Japanese police managed to arrest the guy who attacked me. The other one is I have been very active on social media in Thailand, and in 2020, I set up the largest Facebook group devoted for the discussion on the monarchy. And because of that, the Thai government sought cooperation with Facebook to try to geo-block my Facebook group and the Thai government was successful. And I was also charged with cybercrime because of that. What's your sense of why the Thai monarchy is so hypersensitive like this? There are, of course, plenty of monarchies all over the world, including the one from which we're broadcasting, that don't do this. You can say more or less what you like about the King of the United Kingdom and nobody's going to bother you about it. When we talk about the Thai monarchy, many people seem to believe that this is a case of constitutional monarchy, something like the UK or something like Japan. But in fact, it's really not constitutional monarchy. In fact, it has been a long time now that the Thai monarchy has defined constitution by directly interfering in politics. And because of that, because of the extent to which the Thai monarchy has continued to interfere in politics. That's why it has to depend or rely on less majestic law in order to silence those who disagree with the role and position of the monarchy, including critics of the monarchy like myself. I mean, how would you quantify the influence that the current king has on Thai politics right now? Well, I mean, his influence is immense. And just when you think that his father... King Pumipon, the late King Pumipon Adiyodet, who, like many people, used to claim that, you know, he was much loved by Thai people. He was already quite immensely powerful when he was on the throne. But when we talk about the current king, the level of that influence has gone up. This is simply because the new king also stepped up his role in politics. And more than any time, you know, in the Thai modern history, he begin to directly interfere in politics more than his father ever done in the past. For example, he amended the constitution in order to strengthen his power position. He also transferred the public fund 
under the Crown Property Bureau into his own possession. I mean, this is just a few examples, but this is just to show that this somehow, this kind of action has uh, resulted in the increase of his own power and position, both in Thai politics and Thai economy. You mentioned the king's father, the previous king, who was, of course, extremely long-serving. He occupied the throne for decades and decades and decades. But are the two men very different? Do you get the sense that the current king is a different character who wants different things? Definitely. They are hugely different between the two characters. I can only say that during the King Quimpon reign, the reason that the less majestic law had not been used so much, that was simply because somehow the previous king enjoyed his own moral authority, including charisma. And I know that sometimes, you know, Western audience might not be able to understand why charisma plays such an important role in Southeast Asian politics. In the Thai case, it is really important. You know, charisma come with other kind of power and authority. And King Pui Pon had really enjoyed, you know, this type of moral authority. He behaved rather well, even though at the same time he interfered in politics, right? He seemed to cling on to certain kind of morality that sort of prevent people from criticizing him. But now move forward to the new reign. This is a totally, you know, different character. The current king has no moral authority, had no charisma. In fact, he has been a notorious, you know, figure, you know, he has been a playboy. People know about it. You know, he lived his life, you know, outrageously. He also, you know, treat his wife in a bad way. People can just look it up on the internet. But this is just enough to say that, you know, the two men are very different. And because of that, it sort of, you know, provoked the Thai people to react in a certain way when there is a transition within the walls of the Thai palace. Do you have any hope then that the situation that is with the Les Majestes laws will ever actually change, that there will be something more akin to, as we've been discussing, the arrangement here in the United Kingdom or indeed where you are in Japan, where there is a monarch, but the monarch is not above criticism? I really hope that it will change and I believe that it will change. The reason I can't say it, you know, wholeheartedly right now is because the situation has been so bad that, you know, we come across with less majestic cases on a daily basis and the number of cases has gone up so shockingly. But when I said that, you know, I have some hope. This is because in 2020 and 2021, that was the first time when the Thai public, particularly, you know, among the younger generation, came out on the street and demanded immediate royal reforms. So in many ways, the younger generation sort of broke down that kind of barrier and taboo. And for the first time, they are making the issue of the monarchy a public agenda. The younger generation, they want to build a new kind of society for themselves in the future. And I think their perception on political power and the way that they look at the monarchy has changed. Pavin Chachawapongpan, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk.
That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.